Hello and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. My guest today is Joe Arvidson. Joe has over 35 years experience in corrections and is the host of the Criminologist podcast. Today, we discuss core correctional skills training that he delivers, how the criminal justice system is viewed in the media, prison as a criminogenic need, and perpetrators as victims too. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. I have been following your work for quite some time and I feel like we have a lot of similar interests and your degrees as well are in criminal justice and corrections and criminal justice and law enforcement. So I find it really interesting that your experience is in probation, but you're so linked with prisons as well and people in prison and prison officers and you do so many different things in the in the prison space. I mean, you've taught core corrections and I want to talk about your experience of teaching at the university, but first I'd love to talk about your experience of being a trainer at the International Training School for Core Correctional Skills. So for people who don't know what that is, what is it and what do you do? Thank you so much for asking. The International Training School on Core Correctional Skills is actually the, the brainchild of Professor Iwan Dernescu from the University of Bucharest in Romania. He contacted me a little over three years ago, but he contacted me and said that he was putting this international training school together on core correctional skills. And he wanted to know if I wanted to fly over and facilitate a module around cognitive behavioral interventions, which of course I jumped at. And as noted, I've been asked to come back ever since. And I should point out, I know you mentioned the work in prisons with prison officers, which you can we can talk about as well. But to be clear, the majority of students that come to the to the training school are aspiring and or current probation officers, community corrections officers. And those skills that we teach, again, the aforementioned Core correctional skills are things that many current practitioners will likely recognize. Things around, for example, the value of building the working alliance, which we know is at the cornerstone of any of these skills. For any of these core correctional skills to to take hold, there's got to be that therapeutic alliance. So one of the components of this school, of the training kit, is building that working alliance. We also talk about pro-social modeling problem solving, motivational interviewing, and as I just noted that I train around cognitive behavioral interventions. And it's an international school, so amongst the other crazy awesome things, I get to see all the various perspectives about how these skills are applied in real-world settings, in different contexts with different types of clients and different different structural challenges. One of the things I always tell folks about when I train over in Barcelona is that most of the students are from, or have been from at least, Central or Eastern Europe. I sort of naively, the first year over there, I thought, oh, I'm going to hang out with students from from Britain or France or or Germany. <laughs> you know, sort of, again, our somewhat myopic U.S. view of Europe, right? And like I said, it was a lot of Central Europeans, Eastern Europeans, folks who, whose countries rather had been under Soviet rule until not too long ago. So the point of my story, Kagan, is that their probation systems were, are rather, still in their infancy. 
I mean, a lot of students have probation units, departments rather, that didn't exist 20 years ago. Or, for example, I know Slovenia, they have an awesome probation system, and Professor Dernescu has helped them build capacity. But they've only been doing probation in the country for about five years. So one of the points of the story is that juxtaposed to my training experience in the United States, where oftentimes evidence-based practice trainers have to struggle with the, the issue of implementation and sort of that attitude of, well, Joe, we've always done it this way. But when you're dealing with brand new probation systems, you don't get that we've always done it this way resistance. So it was just great to immerse myself in that. That's amazing. And that is so important when working in any type of space in criminal justice that you want to learn because things are always changing and we always need to be getting one step ahead so that we can help people as best we can. So you also teach then or have taught at university in relation to corrections. So tell us a little bit about what you were teaching them, because I know it was around correctional ideas and also about the changing correctional environment. So what kind of things were you teaching people there? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. So I first started teaching at the university level. Boy, it's probably been about 20 years and it was back brick and mortar, traditional Wednesday night lecture every night from 6 till 9.30. My very first class I taught, I was actually then at Metropolitan State University here in Minnesota, was a undergraduate probation and parole class. And I can be somewhat of a pack rat at times and I'm reticent to throw things away. But when I do declutter, I was going through some of my old 20 almost year old syllabi and almost cringing, Kagan, because it was in hindsight, those first courses were very how to, like an instructor's manual almost. But it was really just the the nuts and bolts of probation. I mean, even stuff is down to the granular how to file a probation violation and and issuance of a warrant, you know, again, sort of the on the job, but in the more mechanical way. That, of course, was before I, I was introduced to the wonderful world of evidence-based practices. And of course, I've seen the progression of my courses now, and now they're almost, they're essentially criminology courses now versus, as I taught back then, the nuts and bolts. But to your point, I also then, continue to teach at Concordia University here in St. Paul on both the undergraduate and graduate level. And I've taught a variety of corrections-related courses over the years. For a while, I taught a course on criminal justice in the media, which was really fun because the professors encouraged me, don't just talk about media as far as, for example, the BBC News or the Washington Post or whatever, but look at this through the lens of Hollywood media and how criminal justice is portrayed in the media. So that was really fun to look through that lens. And it was interesting to see, for example, for example, how law enforcement is viewed versus corrections, or how prosecuting attorneys are viewed versus another player in the CJ system. And when I examined this, I really realized, first of all, there's rarely a mention of what we do in the system most folks think that when a, when the bad guy's arrested and the credits roll, that's the end of their story. <laughs> it's not the end of the story, folks. <laughs> but then more, I guess, troubling, if you will, is that traditionally when corrections is portrayed in the media, it's prisons. It's not community corrections. It's not probation parole officers. It's prisons and it's the corrections officer, but it's the evil corrections officer 
and the protagonist is the inmate or the justice-involved individual, which I understand from a storytelling perspective, but it painted this sort of narrow view of what we do in, in corrections. So to get back to answering your questions, I thought, okay, I've got to, A, sort of change that narrative. Now when I teach uh, on the graduate level, the course you referenced, Correctional Ideas in a Changing World, it is all about it, introducing those evidence-based practices, but I really leaned into what I call the practical applications of learning. And bear in mind that this is a required course for the graduate program. So whether somebody wants to get into corrections, get into probation and parole, this is still a required course. So my point is, I'll get a lot of law enforcement individuals who are taking this criminal justice leadership course, and my course is a requirement. So they're not necessarily going to be doing this when they go back to their vocations. But ironically, those students love this stuff the most. I mean, if I introduce, for example, the the idea of criminogenic need to somebody who's been working in corrections and maybe they're taking this graduate course because they want to get into an administrative role or advance their career, yep, they understand criminogenic need. They know who Bonte and Andrews are, et cetera, et cetera. But if you introduce criminogenic need to a police officer, it's just eye-opening because, and again, bear in mind, they're volunteering to, to be here and broaden their horizons. But it's just eye-opening because they've never really been challenged with what, what drives the behavior of that repeat offender that you seem to arrest every other Friday night down on Main Street for some nefarious behavior. They're not evil or a jackass or born under a bad sign or whatever. No, they're riddled with criminogenic risk factors. And when I've introduced this to law enforcement officers, that perspective just changes and or they they put it in their back pocket and they realize, well, I can I can use this now coupled with the motivational interviewing techniques that Joe just taught me and et cetera, et cetera. So I really try to challenge them and put it on them that, okay, yeah, on the surface, you might not think this content applies to your vocation, but I challenge you to find a way to apply it because guess what? Whether you're the, the law enforcement officer or the therapist or the chemical dependency practitioner or the probation officer, you all have one common denominator. It's the same client. So if you're not all on the same page about how to address that client's risk and needs or just their well-being or whatever you think your role is, you're all going to be better informed if you're on the same page. Yeah. And also you could argue that the public should know about that as well, because then we're are more compassionate towards people who commit crime, I think. Oh, 100%. 100%. When I was mentioning the International Training School on like Core Correctional Skills, I should note that Professor Dronescu and I were both just in New York City for the American Probation and Parole Association's internet, um, training conference, an intensive session on the core correctional skills training. But one of the things that it reminded me of, for example, and you just mentioned this with the public's awareness, is there's a lot of value in perspective taking. One of the differences when people ask me, well, how are those core correctional skills, Joe, different than sort of what we term core correctional practices here in the United States. And there's a lot of common denominators. But one of the differences I see is that Professor Dronescu, the Europeans lean more heavily, in my opinion, into the perspective-taking aspect. I think in the United States, or maybe it's just where I work here in, in, in Minnesota, but we utilize motivational interviewing 
as a way to get at that, that working alliance. But I think sometimes we forget that the skill of motivational interviewing is really only a means to an end. There's other ways to get at that working alliance. Is pristine motivational interviewing communication styles one way to get that? Yes. Could you also do this through use of humor? Yes. Could you also do this through perspective taking? Yes. Could you also do this on sharing shared experiences with a client? Yes. And again, that perspective taking I find is a great tool. And it also, to your earlier point, helps with our public relations issue that we have in corrections, not just with the public, but even our other stakeholders, law enforcement, prosecutors, the judiciary. Absolutely. So you do so many different things in the correction space. You have so much knowledge in it. Talk to me about some of the current trends that you're seeing in corrections just now through your work. Yeah, thank you for that question as well. And this really was a theme at at the American Probation and Parole Association conference last month too, is that we're really seeing a lot of seismic changes going on here. In part, I think, due to the fact that we're looking at our profession internationally now. I had Glenn Martin on the show a few weeks back, and I forget the context of his comment, but he essentially made the point of saying, oh, in the United States, we have 50 different probation systems, at least, because many states, including my own state, have systems within those systems. And so one of the things we're trying to do is get on the same page with how we deliver correctional services around the world. And it really is stark when you look at it through a global lens and not just in my own backyard kind of lens. Somebody made the point during the conference that if you think about how we require a certificate or a credential for someone who is going to work on my car or a carpenter coming into my house or who knows, even the gardener who's spraying chemicals around my yard. I mean, there's an expectation that you're qualified to do this, right? You have a universally recognized credential or certificate or something. We don't have that in probation at all, which I know we have a lot of great practitioners who embrace evidence-based practices. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But as far as the consistency of services, it is kind of bonkers for our stakeholders, the public to realize, you know, when these high-risk individuals are being released from custody, that the person supervising them, fingers crossed if they've been to Joe's International Training School like recreational skills, and that's not my point, but it's like there's no universal credentialing or recognition. Even if you think of the medical field or the legal field, doctors, lawyers, engineers, your children's school teachers, at least there's a recognized, universally accepted minimum threshold of training they go through. But in probation, it's the wild, wild west. I forgot your question. I got a little tangential there, but... No, just, just around current trends. So as you say, so important that you're talking about that. Yes. One of the current trends, and I've done some awesome work with our friend Sarah Lewis at Penal Reform Solutions over there in Great Britain. I've done some work overseas with her. Sarah, if you don't know her, is a game changer in this sphere. She wrote her PhD after studying over in Norway, which as we know, they're breaking the mold on how we should design our prisons. And at the heart of that Norwegian prison philosophy is 
this notion of dynamic security. Dynamic security versus static security, which I contend is what we do, at least here in the United States and a lot in, in Britain as well. And dynamic security is all about building positive relationships between prison and inmates, which is not occurring, uh, or at least we're not getting a bang for the buck that we should out of that. And I'm not, not talking about personal relationships, of course, but just on a relationship that fosters an environment of trust and communication and mutual respect versus a relationship that's based on don't cross that line, don't walk into this area after a certain hour, don't do this, don't do that. And that's really what's at the heart of what the Norwegians are doing. And that's really at the heart of what Sarah and I are training overseas and and trying to bring to the United States here is just really changing that philosophy. Over here, of course, the inmates dress in silly orange pajamas and they eat in a separate area than the staff eat and they they live in dormitory style. But if you look at the prisons in Norway, they they dress in street clothes and they eat amongst the prison staff. And it's, again, a normalcy. Their philosophy in Norway is that the punishment is being removed from society, removed from your family, removed from your work, removed from your environment. We don't need to pile on once you're in prison. I talked to Shad Maruna, who pointed out to me, and I've stolen it, that when we talk about those traditional criminogenic needs, those eight variables that we know are really predictive of criminality that we try to address, Shad has pointed out to me, prison's criminogenic, Joe. Prison is really the ninth criminogenic need, if you think about it that way. If you're not careful, you're, you're doing more harm than damage if you just immerse somebody in this environment riddled with risk factors, riddled with antisocial associates, you know, poor authoritarian figures based on how they may or may not be treated. So we really need to overcompensate for that, realizing that, yes, at the end of the day with high-risk individuals, prison may be that sort of disposition of last resort. But if you're going to do it, realize you almost have to do so much more to offset the risk that you're instilling by incarcerating somebody. Yeah, you're right. Prison can be so harmful. And from my own research, I've I've spoken with people who have been incarcerated and they've been in the revolving door of crime and they felt that prison really was a school of crime. And I've heard people working in prison say, no, it's a university of crime. So as you say, some, sometimes prison is absolutely necessary, but we need to make sure that we aren't further damaging people because then what impact is that then having on society when that person gets out? Yeah, 100%. And people lose sight of the fact that they're going to get out. I was speaking with somebody on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he told the story that, yeah, from his point of view, growing up, just like I did, watching television shows about the good guys and the bad guys, that the story ended with the arrest. When the credits roll, that's not the end of the story. No, not at all. And I actually had somebody, William Young, on the podcast before, a prison officer in Nebraska. And he said that, and it really blew my mind in terms of the fact that the public do think that you'll see that on the news, somebody goes to prison for life and people think, oh, that's it, lock them up, throw away the key, as some people sadly think. But there are so many officers that actually have to look after that person day in, day out for the rest of that person's life. Yeah, it really is telling how little the public knows about what goes on in the prisons or that 
to my point, the vast majority of those individuals are getting out. It's not the last chapter. And then sadly, when, when we talk about what that experience is like, I'm sure you've seen and or are aware of that awesome documentary, The Road from Crime. And I know in the documentary, when they speak to the individuals with lived experience, they make the point of the punishment for me started the day I was released from prison. That's when the real pain kicked in. Yeah, that's the thing. So many people are not prepared for it, unfortunately, and we do need to help them in in that sense. And as you say, that's where probation becomes so important. So talk to me then about, I know that you're really passionate about the TIDES model. So tell us a little bit about what, what that is and how that's helping people on their journey. Oh, I would love to talk to you about the TIDES model. So my, my colleague and I, Nicole Staley, have been talking for quite some time about really both of our passions, mine being that of desistance from crime and hers being that of trauma-informed care. Nicole and I both have histories working in, in corrections, community corrections, working in facilities, whereas I went down the rabbit hole of desistance from crime, she went down the rabbit hole of trauma-informed care. And we started talking about our individual passions, if you will, and we both realized that the more we talked, the more the usual suspects came up as far as not just precursors, but interventions with the populations that, that we really cared about. So Nicole and I sort of had this, this Reese's peanut butter cup moment when we realized, holy cow, we keep talking about how to recognize precursors and address them via interventions. And they're the same thing, whether we're dealing with trauma-informed care or desistance from crime, which is how we came up with our TIDES model. Listeners are wondering, it's an acronym for trauma-informed and desistance, T-I-D-E-S. We tried to be clever with our acronym. We love acronyms and corrections, by the way. And yeah, when we looked at it, we essentially came up with four components or four pillars of our TIDES model. And those are self-regulation, identity, resilience, and social support. So if your listeners are coming from that lens of either trauma-informed care or desistance from crime, I'm sure they're saying to themselves, yeah, that sounds like the basics of a, of a good model that my client would benefit from. So if we could just real briefly look at each of those, when we think about self-regulation, and I know I've been talking about criminogenic need, but if you think of criminogenic need around criminal history, antisocial personality pattern, risky thinking patterns, I could sort of just condense those all down into self-regulation. It's, it's our ability to manage emotions, especially when we're faced with challenges. And so we, we saw this theme of self-regulation deficits. More to the point, okay, if we could address self-regulation, that would help in the journey towards desistance. And it's also key in trauma-informed care. We really get into the neurocriminology aspect of this with Tides, which is something I'm also really excited about because we both realized, wow, that is an uncharted frontier that the field needs to be exposed to. But that was our first real big sort of common denominator was self-regulation. If someone's dysregulated, your cognitive behavioral interventions just will not take hold. And it also helps, again, in the trauma recovery. And the next pillar, the next component of the four was 
that of identity. And I know for the desistance aficionados, I don't need to talk about the value of identity. But what was really fascinating was we, Nicole pointed out to me actually that identity really plays a role in trauma recovery as well, because it's how that individual views themselves and what the traumatic experience did to them and changed their identity. And with the more we looked at the literature, the more we realized, yeah, if we can address identity, it's going to be one of those two for one Reese's peanut butter cups moments. And then the four, uh, the third pillar of the four rather was resiliency. Resiliency kept coming up in the desistance literature, which I like because you don't see resiliency, for example, in the risk-needs-responsivity literature per se. And as Nicole pointed out to me, resiliency is huge in the trauma-informed care literature. And then lastly, social support. We know social support is a huge factor in desistance from crime, even above and beyond that criminogenic need of antisocial peers, antisocial associates. Social support is really a major tenet when you look at augmenting someone's desistance. And again, as Nicole pointed out to me, it's also huge when you talk about family, friends, specialized support groups. It's huge in trauma-informed care world. And realizing also that many justice-involved individuals have undergone trauma, which getting back to our conversation, Kagan, about what the public knows and doesn't know. One of the things I try to do on my podcast is break down this binary us versus them way of thinking. I don't think the public realizes that a good chunk of people in prison are victims or that this is a slogan I've stolen from trauma-informed care world. Hurt people hurt others. So we tend to look at, for example, a domestic violence perpetrator as the bad guy and his his victim as the, you know, the victim, the good guy. I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but it's not that black and white. There's a lot of gray there. If you really unpack that that behavior, and the statistics will back me up on this, it's close to 90%. If you survey individuals on supervision for a for a domestic violence offense and ask them, how many of you witnessed your fathers abusing your mom? It's close to 90%. I mean, it's it's social learning theory on steroids. But if we look at their current behavior more as a survival reaction than a criminal behavior, it helps humanize that individual. It augments some of that perspective taking. And it gets out of that binary us versus them and affords us, the practitioner, the opportunity to more holistically supervise and treat that person to break that cycle. That's the other thing that always sort of drives me nuts sometimes when I talk to maybe the more jaded practitioner, if you will, and I hear that line of, well, Joe, I'm always out thinking about the victim. I'm always thinking about the victim, which is admirable. It's what we should be thinking about, but don't be so limited to only be thinking about the past victim. I'm thinking about the victim too. I'm thinking about the future victim when the 95% of people who are incarcerated in this country get out or when that domestic violence individual offends again because we did not adequately address those survival mechanisms that they learned through their experiences, which we refuse to look at because we were looking at that 
behavior through this very narrow date of offense, us versus them, victim versus perpetrator, black, white, and not holistically looking at the big picture here. It's why, as you know, Kagan, I end my own podcast with my tagline of there's no them, there's only us. I'm going to ask you this question because I totally agree about a lot of perpetrators were victims first. And I do talk about that on the podcast. I talk about it in my personal life. And I've had a number of people say to me, well, I was abused as a child too, and I never turned to crime. And I never know what to say to them because it's humans are complex. But what would you say to that to somebody who says that to you? Well, that's a great question. And I would say to your point, you had a different experience. You went out a different pathway as far as your reactions to that abuse or that trauma. And as you pointed out, your galaxy of support was different. Your galaxy of experiences was different and you coped in a different fashion. People cope through self-harm, through substance abuse, through hurting others. But we all have a reaction to external stimuli, but it's just predicated on our own experiences, our own values, our own lens that we look at the world through. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. You're right. Everybody has a reaction. It might just, they might just cope in a different way. That's great. Thanks so much for that. And I want to talk about your podcast because your podcast is absolutely brilliant. The Criminologist podcast, I'll pop a link to it in the show notes. You speak with so many people in this field who have so much knowledge to share. So why did you start your podcast and what are some of the learnings you've got from the podcast that really stick out for you? Thank you so much for that question. One thing that I love when I talk about the podcast is that how it really is an example of sort of practicing what what we preach. And I, I tell folks, listen, this gets back to what I just said earlier, as far as there's no them, there's only us. We're all humans. This is also why when, hopefully, your listeners will reach out and say, hey, Joe, I'm intrigued about that Tides model. But when I mentioned the neurocriminology tie-ins to it, this is one of the things that Nicole and I are so excited about. The reason that it works is that we're all hardwired the same. It's really all about, again, this more holistic way of, of looking at human behaviors. And so when people ask me about the podcast, I'd like to point out to them, one of the big themes of the podcast is, among other things, educating people around the topic of desistance from crime. And, you know, this Kagan, but in a nutshell, when you talk about desistance 101, we often talk about those variables around human capital, social capital, and identity. So I'll point out to folks that when I launched the podcast, one of the reasons I launched it was to get at what we've been talking about, this bad public relations that folks have or just being misinformed. Not just the public, Kagan, but I would say practitioners. I realized I'm a self-described nerd. I love cuddling up with Federal Probation Journal. I don't know if you are aware of that publication, but it's an awesome publication that comes out quarterly and they publish a lot of great things out there by great thought leaders. But it dawned on me, not everybody likes to sit and read the abstract of Fergus McNeil's latest publication. So I launched the podcast in part to simplify what we're doing in the field, to talk about what we're doing in the, in the field as far as evidence-based practices. 
But getting back to the point about practicing what we preach, I realized that on my journey since launching the podcast, well, what have I done along the way? I've augmented my human capital, which is really those sort of traits and skills you 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 bring to life. And I've done that from talking to literally thought leaders around the world in corrections. I also talk on the show a lot with folks that have lived experience, which I learn from them all the time. So that's how my human capital has grown via the podcast. My social capital has grown as well because, as is evidenced here, Kagan, I don't just interview somebody and that's the last interaction I have. My social capital grows because I've developed relationships, professional relationships with these people and We all know the value of social connection and the growth process. And of course, my identity has evolved. I've gone from being an evidence-based practice trainer in my corner of the world to being an international trainer on a variety of topics here related to criminal justice. But I've been to Scotland. I mentioned I'll be returning to Barcelona for the third time. I've traveled with Sarah and her team internationally. I'll be speaking in Australia next month, delivering a keynote address down there. So yeah, my identity's changed as well. And when I look at the formula, it's the same formula that I would contend works on our clients. Build their human capital, build their social capital, work on that identity, and voila, you get a behavior change. And so I'm a product of, of, of that formula. Yeah. And you've got so much knowledge to share with the world. So I'm going to put your links in the show notes so that people can reach out to you. And I'm so grateful for you for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. I love being here, Keg, and I look forward to some type of interaction or collaboration in the future. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode. So please reach out to me and let me know. Please also follow and rate the podcast on whatever platform you listen to to spread the word about the podcast.